Welcome to Films in the Wilderness, Season 3. Uh, this is Lent 2022, and as a programming note, I want to say at the beginning that Judd is taking a producer's role this season uh, as he has two young children at home and has started work at a new church. But I'm Carl Stevens, and I'm very, very happy to be joined both by Holly Engel and Molly Cook for this season. So it'll be the three of us together to discuss five movies that we'll be talking about in the next five weeks. Um, so Holly, do you want to introduce yourself? Say something about who you are? Uh, sure, yes. Um, I'm Holly, and uh, I'm a, a student at Ohio State University. I'm a first-year grad student in French, um, but I'm also hoping to um, study film, if that's possible. Um, that, that's it for me. Yay. Uh, Molly, do you want to say who you are? Of course. I'm Molly Cook. I am a postulant for the priesthood in the Diocese of Southern Ohio, awaiting um, hearing back from seminary this Lent. And I, my background is in linguistics. I currently work in a research lab at The Ohio State University. Fantastic. And today we will be discussing Hal Ashby's, I believe, 1971 film, Harold and Maude, made in the year of my birth, but probably long before either of you were born, I'm sure. Um, and we picked this film because the overall theme for all of this Lent is about new things emerging or springing forth. And we have three questions which we are going to ask in the course of this podcast. But first, just because I don't really know, Holly, I know that you like the movie because we talked about it after church on Sunday. Um, do you want to give any like overall reactions right off the start? All right, so initial reactions to the film. Um, I really had a lot of fun watching it. Um, I loved the dark humor in it. I'm a dark humor type of person. Um, and I thought that it that was very funny, but I also really loved watching the relationship bud between Harold and Maude. Um, and I just thought both of their characters were, were um, very fascinating people and they're were, they were very well done too um but additionally i liked the the filming style um and the shots were very beautiful um a lot of the time um so those are my initial reactions yeah you mentioned to the that to me um on sunday and so when i rewatched it this morning i was really looking for that i was like okay what are the what are the shots that holly thought were the best so i'm i'm excited about getting into that with you molly what about you what was your first take on it Oh yeah. So my first take was like, I, I like halfway through the movie, I got halfway through and I was like, what is going on here? Like I had, I had, I had done a little pre-research and I kind of knew what to expect, but I, I, I made it maybe like 40 minutes in before I started going, oh my gosh, this is like hilariously funny, but it took me a while to feel like I was in on the joke. And I, once I felt like I was, I had the best time. Um, I really appreciated, I guess, a lot of the the imagery and the symbolism. So I'm excited to get into that. Yeah, I was I was telling you, Holly, that I think this is the fifth time I've seen this movie. It might be the sixth. Um, so obviously, it's a movie I love. But I first saw it probably when I was 13 or 14 years old with uh, my brothers and my cousins. And there was a point where one of my cousins said they're not falling in love, are they? And I was like, no, no, that couldn't be. That, that would be too strange. And then like two scenes later, they're in bed together. 
was, it was a real eye-opener for me as a young person to be like, oh. It did strike me. Like, I was, I was, I think I was having this thought, like, most of the time, but it really kernelized for me, like, toward the end, where I was like, if the, the genders were reversed in this situation, it would be a very different movie. Oh, yeah. Like, we would be having a very different discussion right now. That is really true. That, that paradigm, we're so used to, I think, like, at least now I, um, in, in our culture, we're so used to, like, seeing those age gap relationships where the man is older and having a certain sense of judgment about them. We know that narrative. But this narrative that we see in Harold and Mott and also in The Graduate, like, a little bit more uncomfortable, a little less status quo. Yeah, I think it might be different if there was if it was like a workplace comedy or something. If there was like some super creepy power dynamic going on. But if there was like money imbalance was happening the other way, you know, like if he wasn't the rich kid. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've created three questions to guide our discussion throughout the season. Um, So the first question, which Holly, I'll ask you first, is... um, what experiences of metaphorical wilderness do the characters in the film go through? I feel like Harold, um, before before he meets Maud, um, is very much in his own uh, personal wilderness. And may, maybe he's just entertaining himself by faking his death multiple times. I don't know. I guess, I guess that could be fun. Um, but I also see that he's lonely um and that he's searching for um he's searching for affection from his mother who's not doesn't really care um and and he's searching searching for love but he doesn't seem to know what he's looking for he just knows that he he like wants something um and that he and the only way that he's able to fulfill whatever happiness it is that he needs is by faking his death and attending funerals uh, for whatever reason (laughs) Uh, yeah i really want to get into the beginning of the movie um uh, did you notice that the the movie starts and all we see is his feet and then we see him fill something out and we see his name but we don't see his face until he's lit a candle um which made me you know being a good episcopalian i was immediately like oh ritual like this is a movie that's going to be weirdly about ritual in one way or another so, um, but Molly, what did, what did you see? Like, what is the wilderness for Harold? Well, I was actually going to talk about the wilderness for Maude. Yeah, to cover Harold pretty well, but yeah. it's interesting because they, they, they're constantly like foiling each other the entire movie. They're presenting this like kind of mirror image. So, whereas like Harold has this preoccupation with death as I guess his means of like, finding light in the wilderness um it's like his wayfinder Maud is like dealing with the wilderness of the end of life and mm-hmm. it's very clear from some obvious and some subtle details in the movie that she doesn't really have a lot to go on uh, as a model for this like she doesn't seem to have many peers her age who, who have survived along with her um and she's decided that this is the end for her um, which we, I'm excited to discuss that too, but um, figuring out how to live out those last few days um, 
and make her peace seems to be her her own personal wilderness. And then of course there's all the the wilderness of like the setting of the movie, which is absolute chaos and I loved it. Like the <laughs> the overgrown yet desiccated like courtyard of Harold's house and the fact that you never see him in the same room of this gigantic mansion twice. Um they like Maud's like train car that she lives in, which is also like its own kind of I guess like industrial wilderness in a way. Um, and they even go out into the forest at one point. So it's the imagery is is saturating the movie. Well, right. And I I think it's important to point out that Maud is a Holocaust survivor. You know, she has a tattoo on her arm and there's a point in the movie where she's talking about her childhood in Vienna and it got me wondering, okay, so this is made 71 and she's turning 80. So how old was she when the, um, when the Nazis took over and she must've been in her late forties. So mm-hmm. she lived more than half her life in kind of this, I don't know, this privileged Viennese world. And then this thing happened, which, um, Totally. I mean, I think for many people, it would lead to a kind of depression and a turning away from life. So it seems like a very conscious choice that she's made not to turn away. Um, but that, since you bring up trains, Molly, like, like the, she lives in a train that when they're at the arcade towards the end of the movie, they're like watching trains go around. Mm-hmm. And at that point I knew she was a Holocaust survivor. So I couldn't help thinking about like the trains to the death camps. Um, yeah. And I don't know what to make of like all those images coming together, but I think they do. Yeah. I think it's interesting that like, you know, um, death is like this very, it's, it's presented as this very like, immediate kind of event like like there's this ontological change that happens um whereas life in contrast in this movie is is all of the chaos leading up to it and that's the thing that Maud is embracing and carol uh, and harold is rejecting and that metaphor of being on a train and always going always being on your way to to death in a way like the train to the death camp, the train that she lives in, the train that they're watching as the days like, you know, go around and around the track as, as the days like kind of circle the train before she turns 80. Um, that, that really struck me like the, just that, that contrast. Yeah. So Holly, what shots in particular did you see? Cause you, you mentioned like there were choices that Hal Ashby, Ashby makes. What did what were there any that really stood out to you? Um, The ones that I remember best are, there was one with the, when the swimming pool and where, where Harold is like floating on the water face down in the swimming pool. And it's this very slow um, pan from up to down. And so you just, you slowly see the swimming pool and there's these bright, beautiful colors and it's all green everywhere and it's very full of life. And then you see slowly Harold's body floating in the pool and it just, it completely changes the meaning of the scene. Um, And that's also something that happens. There's this wonderful cut um, from when Harold's mother is telling him, oh, you need to get married. And then we're in a church and there's organ music playing um, and somebody's talking like dearly beloved or something like that. And then 
again, the camera pans down and you see it's not a wedding, it's a funeral. Um, and so I just thought that not only were those funny, but they're really juxtaposing these ideas that don't seem to fit together, this um, vivacious life of the swimming pool with the Harold's um, pretend dead body um, and the, the idea of marriage suddenly becoming a funeral and death. Um, so I, I just thought those were really, I really liked the way that that was done. Yeah, there's an interesting detail. I was wondering if, if Carl, you were going to comment on it in the, the various uh, liturgical scenes of the movie where the colors are all mismatched um, in the altar dressing versus the vestments and all of that. So it's, that, it's kind yeah. of echoing that same dissonance. Of like, I did notice that. Are we celebrating or are we mourning? Like, what is going on? What, what season is it? because he's constantly wearing scarves his mom is in the swimming pool like <laughs> they're driving with the top down this is supposed to be happening over the course of a week and it feels like a lifetime really that was if i were to have a nit to pick i would be like there's no way this happens in a week like yeah. there's too much packed in here for this to be a week um but the shot i was thinking about holly in particular was you know when they're looking at the fields of daisies um and and harold is like i wish i was one of those so that i would be like everyone else and maud i wrote her response down she said much of the world's sorrow comes from people who are this showing an individual daisy with all of its individuality um but allow themselves to be treated like that and she points to the daisies which at a a distance look like they're all the same and then the camera pans up and you realize they're in a graveyard and every tombstone is exactly the same, <laughs> which is oh, a, yeah. a choice. Yeah, I do. That was another one of the scenes. I couldn't, I knew that it was in there somewhere. I remembered like the graveyard shot specifically, yeah. um, but that, and you see again, the juxtaposition flowers are usually associated with life versus all of the gravestones and death. And it's kind of like that in death. And I wonder if this ties into like, how Maud's personality, but how in death when you die, if there's no what there's, I forget who said it that it's you die two deaths when you like actually die and then when you're forgotten, mm. um, and so then you become just like all the other tombstones. Um, but Maud is trying to live out um, the the beauty that she can in her life, and so she is becoming like the flower. Um, so that's I did like that scene. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As to the season thing, like that scene where he comes to find her and she's posing naked for the sculpture, isn't he doing an ice sculpture? Like I was looking at that, I was like, is he carving ice? Well, his mom is cold-blooded, so maybe that's why she can withstand the freezing temperatures. <laughs> that was it was wild. Um, the other thing I noticed, because uh, I was looking for it, were the costume cho- choices. So in yeah. scene after scene, you notice that too. So like, well, I, I, I particularly noticed it because so, so on the note of the flowers, actually, Maude makes this like comment when they're leaving one of the funerals about how she, she can't stand when people wear black to funerals um, and that nobody sends, ever sends black flowers. Uh-huh. Um, and you then notice for the rest of like the movie, this like very slow and gradual and then very sudden progression of like, uh, I guess a fashion evolution for Harold, where he becomes like 
his dress becomes more like less buttoned up and then and then lighter in color until eventually he's like dancing on the mountain like a von trap child yes well i noticed so one of the funerals when they're leaving the one where she steal maud steals harold's purse um there are multiple funerals in this movie dear listeners but you probably know that because you've seen it but um but maude is wearing this beige raincoat and the only other person wearing it is a child who's following along behind her who's wearing the exact same raincoat and i was like oh so emphasizing the kind of childish joy which she can take in the world and then in the psychiatry scenes where harold is meeting with this kind of terrible psychiatrist they're wearing the exact same outfit Mm-hmm. Like Harold has chosen to just mirror the the clothing choices of everyone around him. I even think in like the first dating scene, or maybe the second dating scene, he's wearing clothing which is very similar to the to the woman who works for like the chicken egg producer. His second date, like they're wearing like the same jacket or the same colored jacket, and then they're both wearing patterned shirts. So. I, I've been thinking all day. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but it seems like a very deliberate choice. Um, as was like the marching band after that first funeral. Did you notice that? Yes, this movie really is all about dissonance. Like it's, <laughs> it really is. it's very like it's very jarring. Another thing that I noticed was that they're never in the same car twice. Like, Ooh, I didn't catch that, that in the rooms in Harold's house. I was like, there is never a familiar setting in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, other than perhaps a graveyard, like writ large. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but like, you know, even like Maud's train car changes every time. Um, yeah. So like that, that sort of shows me like, it's making a statement, I feel, about, like, just how the irregularity of life, I guess, that nothing is a routine. But I, I also think that everything is theatrical. Like, I, like his mother is obviously a drama queen, you know, where he talks about he blows up his, his boarding school science lab and comes home and his mother, like, throws her hand out and collapses in the arms of the police who have come to tell her that her son is dead. And I'm a little, um, do you think she was treated fairly like the mom? No. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was a little like, well, she, she's being criticized for being theatrical, but Maude is theatrical. theatrical. So why is she getting blamed for this? Yeah. I was, I was like his poor mom. Like, I just, like, the, the moment, I think the moment that I, like, began to, to become critical of Harold was when, like, his psychiatrist asked him how many times he'd faked suicide, to like, just to give a rough estimate. Uh-huh. And he was, like, 15 or so. And I was like, that is such a weird number to give. Because it's it's not, like, a lot. Because he's doing multiple per day in this movie if we're keeping the one-week timeline. <laughs> <laughs> But also, like, like he's like a, a serial killer. He's gradually getting more frequent. But, um, but also, it's 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 too many. Like, it's way too many to be comfortable. And the fact that his mom has reached this point where she is just not engaging anymore, um, as best she can, at least, 
I'm like, at what what number do you think she gave up? Yeah. Like, or, or and just accepted that he was he was like faking it, you know? Because that is a dangerous game to play with somebody like Harold. And I suppose that she's doing like the best thing she thinks she can. Um, obviously, modern day mental health insights. Um, probably look back on that with some some interesting hindsight but like that that choice is never explored it's it's taken for granted and I think because it's taken for granted the viewer can very easily dismiss Harold's mother rather than treating her as a more holistic individual human being who is obviously dealing with a very difficult situation Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is a scene where she's filling out his dating profile and she starts to just fill it out with her own answers, which might give her give us some insight into why Harold seems to hate her so much is that he she she seems dominant over his personality in ways he's rebelling against. I don't know. Holly, do you agree that that his mom is treated a little unfairly or do you are you anti Harold's mom? I, I, I am anti-Harold's mom, but I do <laughs> I do think that um, because I'm just wondering what happened the first time he faked his suicide. Did, like, what was her reaction to that? Um, if she uh, thought when, that he was killed the one time when he was younger um, and, and reacted um, very dramatically um she must have also been shocked and in pain the first time um that he did that um and like like molly was saying the fact that she's gotten so used to it that it doesn't really shock her anymore except that one time the one time where she finds him in her bathroom um (laughs) there's just like more about the mess of it than anything (laughs) probably probably actually now that you mentioned that but I, I do I do think it is important to consider Harold's mom, but I see why he does not like her. But I, I feel I wonder if Harold's attitude and his mother's attitude, if they're like playing off of each other. Like Harold doesn't like his mom because his mom is doesn't like the way Harold's acting, so they both just kind of um, repel each other, perhaps. Yeah, that's that's why I mentioned the theatricality because they're both incredibly theatrical people, and in a in a normal movie like Maud would be in contrast to that, right? Like she would be the grounded, down to earth person, but in this movie she really isn't. You know, she like goes to the piano and she starts playing a song and singing a lot. And at a certain point, she gets up and starts dancing, and the song is still playing. Like it, she was just pretending. It's a player piano, you know, so she is as guilty of, uh, well, not guilty. Maybe there's nothing wrong with theatricality, but she she has it just like everyone else does. Yeah, I think the chief distinction between Maude and Harold's mother is not theatricality, but it's just what their expectations of Harold and like what a symbiosis with Harold requires of him. Mm. For his mother it's much more of this give and take. Like they they go at each other on in a way. With Maude, she in many ways doesn't expect anything from Harold. I mean, she drags him along and kind of demands that he come along for her madcap adventure. Um, but other than that, like 
or she she's like she views herself as having a shelf life so she's basically like as no strings as a person can be of course Harold doesn't see her that way and that also influences their relationship but I think overall he perceives her as being far less demanding than his mother should he see her that way I mean the first thing she says to him is that 80 is a good year to die and then she tells him she'll she'll be 80 in a week and she's I mean, like it's all out she even says it's all over after that yeah so <laughs> like, if- I don't think it's just about like, the the unwillingness to accept that a person wants to end their life as well I mean like that we see that played out over and over and over again with Harold's mom and then Harold does it himself with Maude he does it doesn't occur to him that she's serious yeah Holly what were you gonna say Oh, I was saying that I thought that Maud was kidding. Like, ah, ha, ha, what a good time to die. Yeah. But so so then when I was like, oh, she actually meant it, that I was I was kind of surprised by that. Um, but then looking back at the film and like seeing how she how she acts and how her mind works throughout the film, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think like the it was definitely like set up in a way to kind of lull the viewer into into taking Harold's position on on Maud's death. It's very innocuous, like when she first says it, but obviously you the you remember it after the fact, right? Yeah, and she, and she so Maud is a person who practices non attachment, but she has this great line where she's like, you know, I try not to be attached to things, but that doesn't mean I don't like owning them or something. Like I'm not getting it right, but um, but she she's not worried about being consistent, which I think is kind of part of why she's a fun why she's great why i would like to hang out with Maud. um okay i think we've explored the the wilderness parts i mean i i think Maud went through her wilderness already in what happened to her in midlife um with uh, the holocaust and um and now she's a person can't have multiple wildernesses carl oh no i'm not saying that you're right you're right um well is she going through a wilderness in this film Yes and no, I think. Like, I mean, what what qualifies as the wilderness? Because, you know, if we take it far out enough, it can be everyday life as wilderness, which is basically what, what we're saying for Harold anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think the process of deciding to die is a wilderness. Mm-hmm. Or but rather, you're acting on having already decided to die. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is I think she's already decided when the film begins. We just don't know it yet so um okay so so what new things are emerging in their lives we've probably gotten to this a little bit too already but any thoughts on that right off the bat well we see harold emerging like a butterfly from a (laughs) cocoon of black clothing (laughs) (laughs) growing his wings Harold's will to live I think is emerging yes yes, exactly to live beyond you know subsistence at least Mm -hmm. and and torturing his mother yeah yeah he's so passive at first in his relationship with Maud like he's just watching her um you know almost like an anthropologist or something like he's not able really to engage for a while um 
and I think that he really is not, until he starts to engage in a relationship with Maud, he really has no relationships with anyone um, that are authentic, right? So I think authentic relationship might be emerging for him too. Do you think like after the end of the movie, he's going to go find like hippie friends somewhere or what? what like? Okay, so I have, a, I have a big question about the end of the movie. <laughs> okay, well, we might as well do it now. We're not going in order. Okay. Do we think that this is his final fake suicide, yes or no? Yeah. Because I just, like, I'm in my mind, it is. And he's going to run away and never see his mother again. And she's going to think he really did it. Or she's going to assume that he did fake it and he ran away. Like those are her only options at that point. He's, he's certainly breaking the cycle of something, all of, all of the light clothes and the music and everything. And the, the theme song playing him out indicate that. Um, and I think that the, even like the symbolism of it being a car going off a cliff because all the adventures were in the cars, the, the relationship with the mom was, mediated through the discussion of what kind of car he should own and drive um so it really seems like he's like tying a bow on this past area of his life and moving forward to me but i don't know if you all agree yeah i i agree i feel like in a way i feel like the last the last suicide was for the viewer in a way, because yeah. that's the only one he does where his mother is not present. And maybe not the viewer, maybe for himself um, is a better way to describe it. Because because there's nobody else to see him do it. There's nobody, um, unless he doesn't go back to his mother, there's nobody who's going to know about it. <laughs> except for whoever finds just this crashed car and is like, what the heck is this about? Um, but it's like he had to do it one more time, like Molly was saying, to be able to move on from that part of his life um, and to to become something new himself. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's the only um, fake suicide that actually feels authentic, mm-hmm. where you actually think he might, he might truly want to die in this moment, right? He's so distraught about Maud's death. And, and I like that idea that it's... A, it's it's a viewer at that point who's being faked out by it. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's really right. There is a moment where he kind of just stares into the camera to like almost a fourth wall break or third wall break. And um so there is some sense of like an awareness of the viewer, however small. Where does that moment come? I don't remember it. It's like right after I think it's like when he's um being yelled at by his uncle maybe uh-huh um i just remember finding it really unnerving i was like oh my gosh (laughs) i hope not (laughs) i'm seen in a way i don't want to be seen yeah but like i mean it kind of gets at that that our final guiding question just to really mess up the order of things um of like what has to die for for the new thing to emerge and i i think his his whole way of life before has to die and that includes the fake suicides yeah i think in a way really mod has to die which is sad but no that's true um i i think in a way like he needs to learn what he is really rebelling against you know like at the beginning of the movie just the fact that he is imitating his psychiatrist in terms of dress at any rate 
to me that indicates that he's he's not totally out like he he thinks it's mockable but maybe he doesn't know why like he doesn't have any kind of thesis for why he thinks um the world is messed up and stupid um and maud kind of gives him that thesis you know like this is a a death-based death-dealing society and um where everybody wants to conform because they're afraid and get out of it like escape if you can and I think of that final, you know, he goes to his mom and he tells her that he wants to marry Maud. And then we get that three vignettes of uh, um, his his uncle, the the soldier. I can't remember what rank he has. And then the psychiatrist and then the priest and on the walls behind them, like in each scene, there is a photo on the wall. So Nixon for the soldier, Freud for the psychiatrist. And then I think the, probably the Pope at the time, I don't know who that was for the for the priest. And I think they're, they represent the things that he really is rebelling against. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of shows that he's found it. Like he now knows what he actually wants to rebel against. I don't know. Have you ever seen the the wild ones with Marlon Brando? Do you know that movie? No. He's like a motorcycle guy and he comes into town and somebody asks him, what are you rebelling against? And he says, what have you got? <laughs> <laughs> But I think now Harold knows. He knows what he's against. Well, and there's this sort of like empty space left when he's like explaining his relationship with his mother to Maud. And he's talking about that first time when he he blew up the the science lab at boarding school and and she thought he was dead and how she reacted. And it's clear that this is a very upsetting memory for him. But he never explains how he gets from that to faking his suicides and it's left for the viewer to interpret which is obviously very artistic and we should give mad props to the director but um there's a lot of options for for you know what you could put put in that space but i think almost what's more powerful is to not fill the space at all and say he knew he was upset by it and then he started acting out in like this very childish and immature way because he didn't know what about it upset him. Right. Right. And possibly replaying that situation over and over and over again was his attempt to figure it out. Ooh, that's good. So wow. Yeah. He's going to armchair psychoanalyze Harold here. Maybe he'll start <laughs> dressing like me. Well, but I, I think that, I think that's kind of what I didn't know I was getting at when I raised ritual right at the beginning, because all these suicides are, very ritualized and in fact they're borrowed from religion right like the when he pretends to set himself on fire that's like the vietnam vietnamese monk who set himself mm-hmm. on fire to protest the vietnam war and he does harikari which is a japanese rite of suicide so i think they're deliberately and obviously ritualized but it, molly you're raising the question like why do we engage in ritual and it's probably not because we know what we're doing. It's probably because we're trying to figure something out and we keep doing it again and again until we do figure something out. I mean, I, I certainly think that's the case in, in the Christian context. There's so much that is like a, of ritual that's meant to be contemplative that yeah. you're, you're supposed to like get a new thing out of it each time. Isn't it even why Ma- Maud says she likes funerals? I can't yeah. remember what her exact wording is, but 
I don't know. Holly, do you remember? No, I do, I do not remember. <laughs> but I, okay. I think it is something something like that, that it's, I don't know. I, I can see how it could be because it is kind of like a ritual, especially if you yourself are um, about, know that you're about to die, um, that you might, maybe for Maud it was helping her come to terms with her own impending death by seeing all these funerals and being like, ah, funerals and learning to yeah, be so okay with it. I just looked it up because I, I remember it being like a very modish quote. Uh -huh. um, and it was, there's a time to live and there's a time to die and I want to be on time. And I think that that's very true, Holly, that like she's, she's trying to plan her death at this point and, and wrap her mind around what it's going to be like by exposing herself to the closest thing she can. That's also Ecclesiastes, isn't it? A time to live, a time to die. A time to die. Ooh, it yep. is. Right. Oh, how did I not catch that? Whoa. <laughs> Very good. I'm going to take over as priest now. <laughs> Please do. Um, you know, that said, there is a moment. People are the highest order. Yeah. Uh, there's a moment where Harold asks her, do you pray? And she says, no, I communicate. And, and he asks w with what? And she says with life. So I don't, I, I'm not sure that Maud is, you know, I, I don't know if she's a theist, but she's definitely, she's on some kind of spiritual wavelength, which I can get behind. Um, okay. I, anything else on that? Like what needs to, what needs to die for the new thing to be born? I feel like for Maud, um, you know, she has that black umbrella, which she used in all these protests and, and she's carrying it in that scene where, um, they trick his uncle into thinking that, that Harold has killed Maud. <laughs> and, and I was like, Oh, there's a black umbrella. Um, yeah, I it was the Chekhov's gun of this movie. I was like, Oh, that actually, as soon as they talked about it, I was like, I can't wait for that to come out. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. But I, I think that's that has kind of already died with Maud, like, um, you know, that desire to oppose fascism in any form that it comes from. Like, it's still there in a kind of um, tricksterish way. But I, I think, like, maybe, maybe she, she worked through her trauma um, by first trying to change the world by coming to America and joining all these protests. And now she's kind of given it up like she to me she doesn't really feel like she's traumatized anymore she it feels to me like she's at peace am i am i wrong about that or did you guys pick that up too i mean i don't i don't know that anyone is ever like done being traumatized mm -hmm. like yeah. yeah like i think it's just a stage of processing it right like and that that piece, I guess, like acceptance, right? It's like the whole Kubler-Ross mm. stages of grief thing. Um, I think that's a very like important and poignant part of trauma of like knowing yourself as a person who has been victimized and has survived it and is now, you know, moving beyond beyond it. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that the trauma is gone or that the residue of trauma is gone. Um, 
I could get all academic about that. <laughs> I wrote a paper on it last semester. Um, but the, about how trauma stays with you through generations, like even even um, physically residue of trauma can be passed down from generation to generation, but acceptance doesn't might not necessarily get rid of that trauma, but it helps you to live your life uh, in a better quality of life. And, and and maybe that's the point that Maud has reached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly a, like one of the most emblematic examples in our culture, t- even today, of what that like long lasting trauma can look like is, is the, the way it's played out generationally um, in Holocaust survivors and their descendants. Mm. Yeah. Well, okay. I stand corrected. She has to work through her trauma, but it's in a different phase, I think. I think she's doing something different with it, maybe. Yeah, but I think she's certainly still affected by it. Yeah. Well, but, I, mean, I think it certainly informs her decision to to want to die on her own terms. Yeah. I think that's right. And uh, even, you know, they're in, in her house and she shows them this painting she did where of Leda in the Swan, where she's Leda. And I'm like, that is that is not a happy image, right? That is not something I think most people would... It, it was another of those little, those little moments where something... You were hinted that there was a hint that something much worse had happened to her than just that she was like in a... a an old bohemian you know um okay well any final bits we want to pick up like any particular scenes we didn't get to talk about or um i just have one which is (laughs) when when they're he and his uncle are walking through i don't know where they are right where they go so that his uncle can give him this talk about how he should join the military it looks like maybe it's a military hospital or something but his uncle is walking along talking about all the wonderful things that have come out of war and he says world war ii gave us the the um does he say big pen or the ballpoint pen world war ii gave us a ballpoint pen and at that moment somebody falls down behind him he just like collapsed to the ground and for some reason i just thought it was hilarious i don't know why <laughs> like that's amazing well, I think it points out the absurdity of like trying to find silver linings everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Right. Um, but um, my favorite scene was um, his final computer date. Yeah. Was her uh, sunshine? Like, sunshine, yeah. <laughs> Where she just goes all in and yes, ands his suicide attempt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was, I was like, oh my gosh, she's so perfect for you, Harold. <laughs> And I really, really like in my head canon, like he runs away after like sending the car off the cliff with his banjo and serenades sunshine and they like walk off into the sunset together because she's like everything that's good for him about Maud and she takes him as he is. Um, she's equally theatrical, but she she also like enjoys taking the piss out of his mom, like <laughs> I ship it so hard. <laughs> She's my favorite character. I, I don't think I do. She was too much like, oh, the military is so beautiful for, you know, like she was, I love your house. She seemed like, to me, she seemed like a suck up who would say anything to getting good. 
But was she just doing the long con? She was probably doing the long con. Yeah, if she ends up with him, they're definitely moving back to that house. And the mother's going to go live up in the attic somewhere. And so she'll rule out. And then it'll be total reversal. The mom will start faking some <laughs> yeah, I think we just written the sequel. <laughs> Sunshine. Uh, Holly, any, any scenes stand out for you? Oh, for gosh. I, I guess I kind of, well, the, the shots were some of my favorites. I did like when um, they just replanted the tree in the woods because as a kid and even now sometimes i i just like want to do that so i'm like good for you guys and then when the the police officers just after them and she's like oh don't worry about it it's fine and then she like steals somebody else's car i'm like this is chaotic what's going on but they're saving the environment i love it yes. i think we need to talk about the, the the trail of devastation that they leave in their wake though Oh, yeah. I feel like we'd be remiss to just kind of skip over that. But, like, this, all of this learning is coming at a, an extreme cost. A, to, a like, social cost. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that too when she's like driving around the city, and I'm like, man, I'm glad there are no children on that sidewalk because they would be goners. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. She might be a little too much of a free spirit for, uh, for for comfort but uh, it's the nature of hyperbole yeah like we get we get like to destroy new york in every avengers movie i think that harold and maude can steal a few cars and it relatively be seen as a victimless crime yeah i think that's probably true um okay well this has been super fun um so dear listeners uh next next week we are going to talk about the 40 year old version so that is not Steve Carell's movie, the forty-year-old version. This is I see you can't even, I can't even pronounce it to make it sense. But it's a forty-year-old V E R S I O N, which is this amazing film from a couple of years ago by Rada Blank. Um, and so don't get confused with V I R G I N. You want V E R S I O N, the forty-year-old version. You, you guys haven't seen it yet, I take it. No. you're in for a treat i hope i hope you like it never know um so thank thank you for listening to films in the wilderness our theme music was provided by brianna kelly uh jed deering is our producer and we are if you want to join this conversation saint stephen's a church that holly molly and myself are are members of um and trinity columbus which is judd's new church are going to be doing adult formation on zoom on wednesday nights during lent discussing these movies and you are always welcome to join go to st stevens-columbus.org to find a link to that zoom meeting 